But Diana Prince recognizes the coordinate. The coordinates. Sorry. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joseph Jarowski. And this week we're talking about Wonder Woman from the 1977 television series Wonder Woman. To help us out in our discussion, we're joined by Andy Mangles. Hey guys, good to be here. Thank you for joining us, Andy. And uh, why don't we just go ahead and share with listeners why you are an ideal guest to have on to discuss the Wonder Woman TV show. Well, I... Don't know that I'm the ideal guest, but I don't, I, I will take that, uh, with, with great happiness. I, I am probably one of the world's experts on Wonder Woman. And these days I have been writing the six issue miniseries Wonder Woman 77 meets the Bionic Woman, uh, from Dynamite Comics and DC Comics. And it's the first time that these two massive television superheroines, uh, have met in, uh, their history. And uh, I would imagine you really had to immerse yourself in this Wonder Woman TV series to prepare to write the uh, uh, the same character in the same time period for that comic book. Well, the immersion really began when I was ten years old when the series started, and I've I've been a hardcore fan of it ever since. It is, you know, quite literally the the. Um, yeah, Star Wars is my Star Wars, but but Wonder Woman is my Star Wars before <laughs> Star Wars. Uh, well, yeah, I, I think that that makes perfect sense. Uh, that you know, <laughs> if you if you're a fan of something, you know, yeah. I mean, these days I suppose people might say, you know, this is my Game of Thrones or this is my Harry Potter or or something. Mm-hmm. You know, that that thing that that reached you at just the right age where it became everything that you. Uh, that that encapsulated the best of your youth and all the best uh, elements of your imagination and it, you know, so forth. That was that was Wonder Woman for me first, and then it eventually was Star Wars and you know other shows yeah. and movies. I, I, that's just such a great way to describe fandom, though. I, I really enjoyed that. For me, this is a show that I kind of knew was around when I started to get into superhero comic books. I knew that this was something... I saw more reruns of the Adam West Batman than of uh, this Wonder Woman, but I think I caught a few. And then as I started to academically kind of look into uh, Wonder Woman in particular, I um, got the the DVD set of the first season and watched all of those. And that was kind of my exposure. What about you, Todd? Are you familiar with this TV series? I uh, was not. I mean, I knew that it existed. Uh, but I had never seen an episode until today, and uh, and I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Well, the the episode you <laughs> saw today, you, I think you saw the two part of the feminine mystique, and that's that's actually it's from the first season, and really the first season was designed directly from the comic books, and it was something that uh, the the guy who developed it, Stanley Ralph Ross, and the producers. Were, they weren't just paying attention to the comic books. They had assistants on staff who were reading the old comic books and taking notes and saying, well, this story might be able to be adapted into a, into an episode, or this story might be able to be adapted, or with these changes, this story can be adapted. So they were, they were not just looking to the comic books for inspiration. They were actually adapting stories from the comics. This is not one that is directly adapted from the comics, but it, it almost could be. It's so close. It's so close in tone to 
uh, the, the the vintage 1940s comics that that it really could have been. Yeah, I think um, just to let our listeners know, we are going to be talking about a two-episode storyline called The Feminum Mystique, uh, and this is from the first season of the Wonder Woman TV series. These episodes originally aired November 6th and 8th, 1976. The episodes were written, written by Jimmy Sankster, Barbara Avedon, and Barbara Corday, and directed by Herb Wallerstein. And Wonder Woman was, of course, played by Linda Carter. And in these two episodes, just the, the brief synopsis, uh, Wonder Woman's sister, younger sister Drusilla, is sent from Paradise Island to see Wonder Woman in America and... In her journey, she ends up getting kidnapped by Nazis and accidentally leads those Nazis back to Paradise Island. You don't want to do that when you're living on a place called Paradise. <laughs> Introducing the Nazis is going to disrupt the ecosystem there. Well, it isn't just that the, that they were Nazis. It's also that they were men. Paradise Island is an, is an island full of women. Yes. And, uh, you know, so, so not only did she introduce uh, Nazis into the equation, but they were male Nazis. So it was really, uh, she kind of, uh, she kind of hit, hit it bad on almost every front. Yeah. <laughs> this is not, uh, Drusilla's shining moment, at least the first, first episode of this two-parter. Do we ever see female Nazis in this? Yeah, actually, the second and third episode of the series, uh, the second episode is called Wonder Woman Meets Baroness Von Gunther. And then the third, ep- third <laughs> episode is Fausta, the Nazi Wonder Woman. <laughs> And it was, the third episode, uh, is actually the one that is directly taken from a, from an old comic book. Uh, the, they changed some elements of it, but it's essentially directly taken from a comic book itself. And, uh, so the reaction of the, t- of the two female Nazis in the episodes is different. One of them kind of sees the error of his, uh, error of her ways and is reformed. And the other one kind of doesn't see the error of her ways by the end of the episode. And, uh, so they, they kind of played off the point that it wasn't just men that were, were bad, uh, that women could be bad as well, but that women could also reform. You know, the, what, what's interesting about the, the time period and, and what a lot of people kind of don't, when they watch it today and they think, well, it's, it's, it's a period show and it's, you know, it's a little dated and things like that. But what, what a lot of people don't, don't understand is that this was one of the first television series to feature a female lead character that wasn't a, a, a comedy. Um, you know, the Mary Tyler Moore show and the, the Lucille Ball show and Bewitched and all these shows that had female leads were all comedies, but they were not direct. They were, they weren't drama. They certainly weren't action dramas and they didn't address these types of, of themes. So with Wonder Woman uh, as a live action drama series with a female lead was was pretty groundbreaking and then on top of that when you work in the the meanings of wonder woman and the feminist leanings of the character and the fact that she came from an all female society and that she didn't completely understand the world of men it it really had a lot of political undertones that no other show on television at that point had ever undertaken. 
Yeah, um, I, we won't be able to get into like all of the history of Wonder Woman, but I, that's something that's true to the character going back to the 1940s. You know, the intent behind the character and what was she was supposed to represent, and the kind of stories that were being told that were very unique uh, from the 1940s on, and still unique in appearing on television mm-hmm. in the 1970s, definitely. All right. Uh, before we get into a little bit of trivia about this particular episode, we would just like to remind our listeners that we provide you with four episodes of content every month, and hopefully those are entertaining for you. And if that is worth a quarter per hour to you, we would invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least $1 per month. And all supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to special quick cast episodes, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss in a future episode of the protagonist podcast. All right. Um, for trivia, I could just talk about Wonder Woman trivia, and I'm sure you could too, Andy, for the entire <laughs> <Right>. episode. <laughs> and, and, and just let it go. Uh, but we're going to try and uh, keep this focused a bit on the Wonder Woman 77, but we do have to acknowledge that Wonder Woman was created by writer William Moulton Marston and artist Harry G. Peter, and she first appeared in a comic book in 1941, and she is one of only three characters to have had her comic book adventures published nonstop since the golden age of the comic book industry, the other two being Superman and Batman. There are certainly other co- uh, golden age comic book characters that have reappeared and are quite prominent, like the Flash or Green Lantern or Captain America. Uh, but Wonder Woman, Superman, and Batman, they never stopped being published in Absolutely. comic books. Absolutely. And, and in multiple comic books. I, at one point, Wonder Woman was appearing in four different series. Uh, she was starring in Wonder Woman, Sensation Comics, and Comic Cavalcade. And she was a member of the Justice Society of America. So she was actually one of the most prominent superhero characters of her time, she she appeared in at times in more books than either Superman or Batman did. Yeah, there are a few um, maybe female superheroes or or like proto female superheroes that appear before Wonder Woman, but she is definitely the first to have had the impact on popular culture that just resonated outside of this very small niche reading of, of a few comic books. Um, Wonder Woman definitely uh, exploded beyond just the comic book page, even even early on. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, William Moulton Marston, uh, this is, I mean, I said we could talk about Wonder Woman trivia for an entire episode. We could talk about this man for an entire episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just going to say he was, uh, initially he wrote under the pen name of Charles Moulton, and uh, before he was writing comic books, he was a psychologist, and his in- he had like a very deliberate intent with Wonder Woman. Uh, that she would advance feminism in young readers, both male and female. Um, he did have a, a, an interesting personal life. Uh, he, he, before creating Wonder Woman, he helped to inspire the invention of the lie detector test. And a lot of people then make the connection with that to Wonder Woman's lasso of truth. The character of Wonder Woman has a lasso that anyone who is bound in must speak the truth. Um, he also, uh, he was married to a woman named Elizabeth and he also lived with a former research assistant named Olive Byrne and they maintained an open romantic relationship. Uh, so, uh, for the 1940s, that was, uh, not terribly common. (laughs) For the, 2000s, I, I say, for the 2010s, that's not very common. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say it's, it's, yeah, it's not, it's not publicly common at all. And it wasn't back then. I mean, you know, their, their private life was very private and only the people who knew them well kind of knew the, uh, the, the story behind the story there. Um, but, you know, Wonder Woman came not just from Marston, but from the fact that he was in a relationship with two, 
really dynamic, intelligent, smart uh, women who supported him and pushed him to to write a character and to to create and write a character that would further a a, a positive feminist agenda. Yeah, um, I was talking about this a little with Todd before we started recording, but I think it's worth sharing that he was, uh, Markson was an essentialist when it came to den- uh, gender and that he thought there were some essential characteristics that uh, women had and essential characteristics that men had. Um, he felt men were motivated more by greed and women more by love. And that kind of essentialism uh, is wasn't uncommon in, in that era, and it was what led to the idea of women being in the domestic sphere and men being in business and politics and, and the army and the military. Um, the difference is that he felt that that essential difference and, and motivation between the two meant that women should be in those other spheres, that they would handle it better than men had been handling, uh, uh, you know, politics and, and, um, the, the world stage. Um, so he, he definitely was like very deliberate in how he conceived of Wonder Woman and some of the thematic goals that he had for the character. Right. Right. And when they, when it came time to do the TV show, they had a, they had an interesting dichotomy because they were so groundbreaking with the show they had to really pull back the reins significantly from what the character had been uh, because the world wasn't ready for that type of feminism to be at the forefront of a, of a primetime series. Yeah. Um, it's worth, I guess we should acknowledge that Wonder Woman's origin story is not as readily known as perhaps Batman's or Superman's or Spider-Man's where people who don't read the comics are probably familiar with the basic beats of theirs. Uh, Andy, could you share just a, like a, a one minute version of Wonder Woman's origin story for our listeners since we're not going to cover it in these particular episodes? Oh, the one minute version, which origin story? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's interesting with the, with the Wonder Woman movie about to come out, we're going to get yet another version of the origin story. But the, the, the base origin is that, that the Amazons, uh, that lived on Paradise Island had come from Greek society and other societies had left the horrors and, and the oppression of man's world and, and with the help of the Greek gods, established a paradise island, a, a land hidden away from, from the world of men where they could grow and learn and pursue music and art and, and writing and so forth. And the queen of them uh, decides that she wants a child, but because there are no men around, she asks the gods to help them. She fashions a child out of clay and the gods imbue that child not only with life, but with uh, extra powers. So as the girl grows up, that's Diana. As the girl grows up, she is a little bit better and a little bit stronger and a little bit faster than, than the other Amazons. Uh, Steve Trevor, who is an American f- pilot during World War II, is in a, uh, a dogfight and ends up crashing on Paradise Island. And so he becomes the, f- the, the introduction for Diana, who's never seen a man. He becomes her introduction. And so in order to, to get him off their island, they decide that they need to send a, a representative to man's world to take him back. And Diana, against the wishes of her mother, becomes that representative and comes to America in, in a star spangled outfit based on the flag that Steve has 
and uh, is dubbed Wonder Woman when she becomes uh, a superheroine. That's the basic. Oh, that was a, That's the basic yeah. one minute origin. I think it took a minute and a half. <laughs> I, I was going to say expertly done because it is sometimes it gets a little more convoluted than that. But we're not going <laughs> to dig into all the variations that have happened. Um, we are talking about the Wonder Woman TV series. Uh, this is kind of a unique series as well. It had three seasons. The first season aired on ABC, and it consisted of a special movie, two one-hour specials, and then an order for eleven episodes. And those all kind of get combined into season one. Generally, when people talk about this, and these aired between 1975 and 1977, and that season was set during World War II. And that's the uh, the episode we're doing with today is set in uh, World War II, and but that made it more expensive to produce than a show set in the present day because you have to do special cars and costumes and everything. And ABC passed on renewing the series, and CBS though ordered a second <laughs> season that was retitled. The New Adventures of Wonder Woman, but it was now set in the present day, and it had an entirely new cast with two exceptions. Linda Carter, who is the immortal Amazon. She was still Wonder Woman. She jumped forward the 35 years. Um, but Lyle Wagner, who had played Wonder Woman's love interest, Steve Trevor, in the World War II season, he was now on the series as Steve Trevor Jr. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but it was not treated as a love interest in those seasons. Um, the series was set in the 1970s. It was became not. No, it was no longer a war series with a superheroine at the front of it, and it became more of a kind of police detective procedural with a superheroine at the front of it. And the two seasons on CBS aired from 77 to 79. And the last bit of trivia, the title for this episode is obviously a pun on the iconic and classic Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, which was published in 1963. And the Feminine Mystique is widely credited with sparking the second wave feminism in the United States. That was, a, that was right. actually, uh, the Feminine Mystique, uh, the, the episodes that we're talking about, were my favorite of the entire run of the show. There's 60 episodes. And in the entire run of it, those, those, that two part, uh, story is my favorite of, of the entire run. Uh, it's, it's hard to not say that the pilot is my favorite because that's, you know, that's the origin story and everything about it is, is pretty fun. But the feminine mystique was really, uh, it was almost the most comic booky of the series and, and also just was, was full of all sorts of really, fun cool moments and 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 some some act some fun guest star actors and uh you know it was by acknowledging not only the the nazi stuff but the paradise island stuff and uh and then working in wonder girl her her younger sister it uh it it brought a, a a world, the world of Wonder Woman kind of, kind of ex- exponentially grew with this two-parter. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed this. When we were prepping to discuss Wonder Woman, I had asked you what some of your highlight episodes were, and you mentioned these two, and I, I remembered viewing it. And I was like, oh, th- those will have uh, some good discussion topics. All right, uh, listeners, we're going to enter the full spoiler summary of this episode. So if you want to go watch these, uh, you can certainly get them on DVD. I believe they are available for streaming on Amazon uh, as well. You may have to purchase the individual episodes, but they're a lot of fun. Yeah. I think you'd enjoy them. I'll, I'll, um, I'll interrupt you here for just a sec and tell you that if you get the high-def versions on Amazon or iTunes, they actually are widescreen 
and they include material that was never, or they include parts of the picture that were never broadcast. They were, they were not designed to be widescreen. So they went back to the film elements, uh, cropped a tiny bit off the top and a tiny bit off the bottom and used the entire film element to the sides. So if you watch the high def versions, you're actually going to see versions that were never aired. Okay. So there's a little more. Yeah, just there's a bit of a a, 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 a bit of trivia for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. All right. So here is the full synopsis. Uh, we begin with German spies, uh, and they are watching an American military base where Steve Trevor and Diana Prince arrive for the secret testing of an experimental plane. You know this plane is awesome because they use also Sprach Zarathustra, or as it's more commonly known, the Don, 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 Don music from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, <laughs> as the plane is wheeled, as the plane is wheeled out of the hangar, you have that playing, so you know this is an awesome plane. Uh, um, as Steve Trevor is about to pilot the plane, some other German spies cause some explosive <laughs> distractions, uh, which allow one of those first spies to go and steal the plane. Diana this Prince, is really, she runs around the, the corner. Secu- the security on this base, I have some serious concerns about the security on the Air Force base. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely a little suspect. Uh, but Diana Prince, she runs, and if you've never seen how they do the transformations in the Wonder Woman TV show, Diana Prince, Linda Carter as Diana Prince, will spin in a circle, and there'll be a flash of light, and then Wonder Woman in the full costume of Wonder Woman is spinning. Some sort of magical transformation takes place. Uh, and Wonder Woman comes out, and she takes care of most of the German spies on the ground as the plane flies away. And uh, Trevor then runs, and he gets a message to his higher-ups, who remotely uh, activate a self-destruct on the plane. And the German spy parachutes out, because he sees the plane's about to explode, and the plane explodes. Uh, the German spy is still in the U.S., and he's working to try and contact Berlin and let him know what's going on. He has help, a forest ranger who is a secretly a Nazi. Uh, the spy is able to get to a force cabin, uh, and he contacts Berlin, and he says that the U.S. has a weapon that makes the spy plane insignificant in comparison. In Berlin, the Nazis say it is time to believe in these rumors of Wonder Woman, and they must capture her, and they particularly want to study her unbreakable bracelets so that they could try and make weapons out of those that material. On Paradise Island, which is where Wonder Woman is from, we see a few displays of gymnastic prowess by the Amazons. And they also have target practice. And a little side note, the Amazons apparently ordered their archery targets from the same place as my scout troop <laughs> growing up. <laughs> uh, one Amazon named Drusilla stands out for her skill. She is Diana's younger sister, and her mother, Hippolyta, uh, sends Drusilla to the United States to find Diana, and she wants Drusilla to tell Diana that she needs to return to Paradise Island and abandon her role as Wonder Woman. So we cut back to Steve Trevor asking Diana to find a place for a dinner with Peter, the inventor of the secret plane. Diana says, well, why not my apartment? Uh, Steve says, that sounds great. Returning home, Diana hears an intruder, but it's just Drusilla in her kitchen enjoying ice cream. Uh, She's never had ice cream before. Drusilla says that Hippolyta wants Diana to return, but Diana explains the importance of the United States defending the world against the evil Nazis and Wonder Woman's role in helping the United States to do so. Drusilla joins Diana, Steve, and Peter for dinner, where she accidentally flirts with Peter, and then they all discuss highly classified information in front of Drusilla. 
about how they have a spare engine for that spy plane, and Peter has five days to rebuild the plane. I love, I love that, back. like, I love that Steve is actually concerned about this. Like, it, it would have been. They they could have just done nothing and just had a conversation, but he they actually take the time for Steve to kind of have this look on his face like, should we really be talking about this? And he looks over at Drusilla and he's like, yeah, I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> There's, there, she does not look like a Nazi. There has to be he has some a really logic. good eye for Nazis. They, they, <laughs> have to, they have to look at the internal logic and say, well, okay, we'll, we'll just let this one slip. <laughs> yeah, you know, see, he looks around the room and he says, yeah, no Nazis here, and then he carries on. Uh, but we, as viewers, are going to cut back to Nazi spies, where we learn that Peter is a spy, the one at the dinner, dinner table. Uh, he tells the other Nazis that the Americans are rebuilding the plane, but um, this other Nazi, he says, no, we're not worried about the plane anymore. Wonder Woman is more important. And Peter surmises uh, that Wonder Woman must be connected to the War Department, which is run by General Blankenship. And the next day, General Blankenship arranges for a security pass for Drusilla. No background check or anything. Just, <laughs> you're good. Uh, <laughs> and he offers to show Drusilla Mount Vernon since he's heading out that way for a meeting. Uh, in the car, they have a discussion about why the American cause is so just and why the Germans must be stopped. Uh, the German, But German spies stop the car and kidnapped the general at gunpoint, loudly saying, to the ranger station, quick, so that Drusilla <laughs> can raise the alarm and bring Wonder Woman directly to them. So Drusilla tries to call the head of the War Department. She just gets on the phone and says, can I have uh, the War Department, please? Uh, the head. Head of the War <laughs> Department. Uh, but she has no luck in actually reaching them. So then she goes and she tries Diana's spinning trick, which is how, again, Diana turns into Wonder Woman. And eventually she's able to magically transform into Wonder Girl. So it's basically the Wonder Woman costume with a few tweaks on it. Uh, but just by spinning, she's invented this costume. Uh, and now she's dressed close enough to Wonder Woman that a lot of people are going to mistake her for Wonder Woman. Steve and Diana find, uh, uh, oh, sorry, um, Wonder Girl uh, tries to rescue the general, but she ends up getting kidnapped by the Nazis, though those Nazis think that this is Wonder Woman. Steve and Diana then find the general at the ranger station. Uh, he was left behind by the Nazis because they don't need the general of the War Department once they have Wonder Woman. End of part one. Uh, in part two, Steve Trevor asks Diana Prince if she's had any luck finding Drusilla, and he actually suggests that Diana maybe take a few days off and go back home and see if they've heard anything, but Diana says she's going to stay in Washington for now. The German spies put a bulletproof vest on Peter, remember Peter is a spy too, but Drusilla kind of liked him, and they throw him into the room with Wonder Girl. And one of the spies shoots at Peter, but Wonder Girl jumps up and blocks the bullet with her bracelet. And then Wonder Girl gets chloroformed by the Nazis, and they are quite certain that they now have Wonder Woman because only Wonder Woman can block bullets with her bracelets. Diana Prince and Steve Trevor are wondering where in the world Peter Knight is. <laughs> he only has five days to build this whole plane, and he hasn't shown up to work. <laughs> and he took a day off. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, he's back with the Nazis, studying the bracelets, uh, but he cannot figure out what the material is. He wants to see if he could maybe charm Wonder Woman into revealing the secret of her bracelets. When Wonder Girl wakes up from uh, being knocked out, Peter is lying on the floor of her cell, and he's bloodied like he's been beat up. After some prompting, she tells him that her bracelets are made of a metal called Feminum. Uh, but then she lets it slip that that metal only comes from Paradise Island. And then she also lets it slip the exact uh, way to get to Paradise Island. <laughs> Drusilla would not be a good spy. <laughs> she needed a little more training <laughs> about keeping back some of this information. Well, it is the, so it is the first Trevor... time she's ever seen a man. So she's, she's, yes. she's understandably like confused. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. This this is a whole new world for her in many different senses. Uh, but Steve Trevor, he receives intelligence that Nazis are planning an attack at a spot in the middle of nowhere. But Diana Prince recognizes those coordinates as Paradise Island. So she now asks for time to go back home and look for Drusilla, and she flies her invisible jet to Paradise Island. I love... She tells I, I have to interject for a second. So, I love how just sort of blasé Steve and Diana are about missing Drusilla. Like, she was just <laughs> held, at, you know, at gunpoint by by Nazis, and they're like, well, yeah, she probably just, you know, went home. <laughs> She's a teenager. Right. <laughs> so so teenager things. It's so weird. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's funny. Yeah, every plot has a moment of hand-waviness to make things work, and this is one of those. Yes. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Hippolyta, uh, okay, so Wonder Woman goes, and she tells Hippolyta uh, that what they know so far, and that they need to preve- uh, defend the feminine mind on Paradise Island. Hippolyta says, can't we just reason with the Nazis? They can't be as bad as you're making out. Uh, Diana says, that's not an option, and she's put in charge of defending Paradise Island. Um, the Nazis do come and attack Paradise Island. Uh, the first uh, Amazon guards who are guarding the mine, they are very curious about men. <laughs> they want to be the men's friends, but when the men attack, they they get angry and dispatch them right away. Then the Nazis use gas to knock out the Amazons, including Wonder Woman. Gas is uh, kryptonite to Amazons, apparently. In America, Wonder Girl escapes from her cell. She calls the war office. She meets up with uh, Astrusilla. She goes and meets up with Trevor. Uh, she tells Trevor that the Nazis have kidna- kidnapped her and that they killed Peter Knight. And Trevor says, no, they didn't kill th- Peter Knight. What kind of story are you telling? Because he's outside this window working on the secret plane that I'm going to show you right now. And... Uh, she tells her whole story again, and he starts to say, there's something to this. And he goes and confronts Peter, who uh, briefly tries to bluff his way out, and then he just sucker punches Trevor and tries to make a run uh, before he makes it about four feet, I'd say, before he gets tackled <laughs> by all the military police right there. Um, on Paradise Island, the Amazons are being forced to mine the feminum, uh, and Hippolyta gives Wonder Woman a pep talk, saying that that she must rebel, even if it means that the Nazis kill Hippolyta. So the kind of the, the Nazi trump card is that they always have a gun pointed at Hippolyta. Uh, Wonder Girl appears on Paradise Island and helps Wonder Woman secretly take out one guard. Uh, the other Amazons make a distraction so that Wonder Woman can go steal all of their bracelets to help them in a rebellion against the Nazis. After the Amazon, uh, the Amazons are all armed with bracelets, they launch a full-on rebellion. They defeat them all, except for that one officer who has a gun pointed at Hippolyta. Hippolyta tells the Amazons to ignore um, whatever the Nazis are telling them, but Wonder Woman says, no, sisters, we have to surrender. But then she throws Hippolyta her bracelet so that now Hippolyta can defend herself from uh, the bullets. And the Nazis surrender. Uh, the Nazis are going to be drugged with a potion so that they lose their memory of Paradise Island, and they're going to be set adrift, and then the U.S. Navy's going to be told, hey, there's a whole bunch of Nazis floating right here in the ocean. You should come get them. Uh, but before this happens, Wonder Woman interrogates the lead Nazi spy with her lasso of truth, so he has to tell her everything, and she discovers that there is one Nazi spy left working as a mechanic on that spy plane uh, back in America. So she has to head back to America to save Steve Trevor and uh, and the military's plane. While Wonder Woman and Wonder Girl fly back to America, uh, this mechanic knocks out Steve Trevor and puts on Steve Trevor's flight suit, and he hops into the plane, and he's beginning to taxi for takeoff when Wonder Woman runs up and grabs the plane by the wing and forces it to spin donuts on <laughs> the uh, the runway. 
my four-year-old had climbed up uh, to watch what I was watching with, with this moment, and when he saw that, he was like, she is so strong. He loved <laughs> seeing Wonder Woman stop that plane and make it spin around. He thought it was the greatest thing. Uh, finally, that spy jumps out, but he he runs into Wonder Girl and gets taken uh, captive. Or, well, he's captured. Uh, Steve Trevor uh, hops into the plane to take it for its actual first test flight. After all this, they need to get the test flight in. <laughs> and then, in the final coda of the episode, Drusilla has one last night out like an American teenager. She's dancing with boys and sampling every flavor of ice cream at a diner while Diana Prince and Steve Trevor look on. The end. Well the end. <laughs> that was that was a very meticulous retelling. I do have to make one major correction to you, though. Oh, okay. Please, uh, please do. Throughout the entire Wonder Woman series, her mother is never named. She's named, Hi- oh. she's named Hippolyta in the comics, but on the TV show, she's actually only ever referred to as Queen or Queen Mother. So Right. So I noticed that they'd only said mother, and when I looked up the cast list, though, they had listed the actress as being Hippolyta, yeah. so I assumed it would, maybe, I just missed it, but that's just uh, fans inserting yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's one of those weird things that they just never did on the show, and um, it, you know, it's it's something that as I'm writing the, currently writing the Wonder Woman 77 meets the Bionic Woman comic, I'm keeping up with that in the, in the series. She gets introduced as, this is the my mother, the queen. And there is at no point in this in the story does anybody call her anything other than queen or mother. So, oh, okay. I figure. I figure. Well, thank you for that correction. She is Hippolyta, but you know we gotta <laughs> we gotta keep up with the rules of the show. Right. I think All I right. think they figured uh, that nobody would would get it, but when they did, cut, they came up with a doll <laughs> for the TV series of the mother, and that they did call her Queen Hippolyta there. Well, it's just interesting that, like, they're doing all this Paradise Island, but the line they're going to draw in the sand is Hippolyta. We're not going to use that name. (laughs) Um, For Paradise Island listeners, if you've never seen the show, just imagine the 1960s Star Trek um, for, like, if they were visiting a Paradise planet and it has all these gauzy uh, dresses with short skirts that Captain Kirk's going to ogle a little bit. That's kind of the costume design for Paradise (laughs) Island. That's that's pretty much it. Everything is is slightly see-through. And a lot of it was filmed in the Arboretum in Los Angeles. So it's ve- there's a lot of greenery and a lot of plants and, you know, so forth. So, uh, they, they got a lot of budget out of just throwing, throwing some gauzy fabric up in front of the Arboretum. <laughs> it really just made me think of 1960s Star Trek. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's well, totally what it looks well, like. Yeah. I have a question. Uh, my first, oh, go ahead, Todd. Um, could one of you explain to me what exactly are, uh, Diana's powers? Because <laughs> I, they seem to be wildly inconsistent here. Are you saying on I, the TV show? Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, on the TV show. Can I, can I make a suggestion? Cause I'm not, producer Andrew, I'm not nearly as versed as, uh, as Joe or Andy, but my suggestion to answer your question is, no, someone cannot explain to you Wonder Woman's powers. <laughs> I just, uh, like, how can you have the speed to stop bullets, but not, uh, but get, like, knocked out by chloroform, you know? Or it just seems uh, like you have the strength to, uh, to stop a plane that's, that's taxiing down the runway, but you, 
but you get they get overpowered in in, in interesting ways. Anyway, so, is there an explanation for that? The the explanation is kind of its training and and its story points. Uh, you know, I mean, super <laughs> Superman has the same thing. He can he can lift an entire building, but and he can fly into space, but he can't breathe in space. So, you know, with Wonder Woman, it, the reason she can deflect bullets is not just because of her speed. It's also because on Paradise Island, they play a game called Bullets and Bracelets where they shoot at each other and deflect the, <laughs> they deflect the bullets. It's, it's a game to them. It's kind of like their version of dodgeball, except with guns. So I, <laughs> which they had before man touched the right. I mean, I, I, I think, too. you know, if Trump had his way, we might be doing the same thing, you know, but, <laughs> um, but, but the, you know, so, so she's trained to fight bullets, but nobody has ever used chloroform. As far as we know, uh, nobody's ever used chloroform on paradise. Island. she still needs to breathe. So, for instance, she can't breathe underwater, so she breathes oxygen, just like everyone else. So, with, sure. chlor- with chloroform, she's breathing in a chemical that she's never encountered before, and therefore, it overpowers her in the same way that it would any other human. Um, okay. You know, the, the, the strength did, does vary a little. Like, okay, so Wonder Woman's basic powers is great strength, great speed, uh, she has some t- telepathic powers, but they were always kind of, uh, as needed. So for instance, she could communicate with animals, but not on the level of Aquaman, you know, telling fish what to do. Um, she, it was more like she could talk to a horse and get it to calm down or talk to a dog and get it to lead her somewhere or something. She was more of an animal whisperer than, than an animal controller. Um, okay. You know, and she could use the, she could, she could focus her telepathy through the ruby and her tiara and kind of Skype with that through mirrors and so forth. <laughs> um, she could jump great distances and that would range from, from whatever they needed it to be. And over the course of the television series, that was based on whatever their budget was, whether she could jump over a, <laughs> a, a fountain or, or in one episode, they had the highest high fall that a stunt person, a stunt woman had ever done. And I think it was 27 stories or something like that. Oh my uh, gosh. You know, I mean, it was, it was this immense high fall. And, uh, so you go, okay, well, Wonder Woman can jump, uh, three stories. Well, now she can jump 27 stories. You know, and so <laughs> I love the I love the sound effect that's associated with jumping in this. Yes. It's it's fantastic. <laughs> well, and, as I'm writing the comic, I actually I the you know, and and I actually <laughs> had to figure out how to spell that so that when we do sound effects in the comic, that that you know, every time she jumps, <laughs> I I type out that sound effect so that the letterer can put it in. Which is so, which is interesting in writing both Wonder Woman and Bionic Woman because I've got to have the Bionic Woman sound effects as well. And so there's her jumping <laughs> sound effects, which are different than Wonder Woman's jumping sound effects, and uh, you know so forth. So awesome, Andy. In writing in writing the comic book, do you get to work in the amazing theme song in any way? As yet, there's no way to <laughs> technically work in the theme song, but. Uh, a lot of the fans have noticed that when Wonder Woman is using her powers, there's kind of like stars appear 
And uh, <laughs> when Bionic Woman uses her powers, we have this like circuitry that's subtly put into the background. So that's kind of like that. That's our music cue coming in because mm-hmm. because comics don't have music. So we're using that same type of thing. And and a lot of fans have noticed that like if they the moment they see those stars that they just go Wonder Woman, you know, they will <laughs> they will get that same effect. Oh, very well done. I like that. Okay. All right. Thank uh, you. <laughs> one question that I had for us to discuss, or one thing that I noticed in this um, kind of a, as a theme, is the interesting use of the multi-generational Wonder Family mm-hmm. um, and the attitudes that are on display from Queen Mother, not Hippolyta, Queen Mother, and Wonder Woman and Wonder Girl um, as the... Uh, eldest of the three, Queen Mother is a little more conservative and set in her ways, it seems. Like, oh, you know, we probably need to bring her back to Paradise Island. She shouldn't be out in the man's world. We don't need to be engaged in that. Uh, Wonder Woman is, you know, 100% out there and she's competent and she's skilled. And Drusilla is a little more, like, trying to go out there and go get them, but causing trouble as she does it because she's not as, as skilled as Wonder Woman. So we get this kind of interesting generational divide between the three. Well, you can kind of look at it as, as it, it would be the same as like, you know, grandpa and, and parent and uh, or grandpa or grandma and parent and, and teenager, um, which is essentially the dynamic they were going for. They had originally wanted to do if if she was a hit enough, they wanted to do Wonder Girl as a spin-off series. And so this was kind of a way to introduce the character and to have her be relatable uh, because she wasn't proficient at everything. Uh, she didn't, you know, she had this naivete uh, uh, about her um, that meant that she was a little bit lost and she didn't, she, she wasn't perfect at everything. And so they thought that would really endear her to young audiences. And in fact, it did. I mean, the, it's, it's hard for most people when they watch her to not love how kind of dorky and, and gawky she is. <laughs> um, you know, and so, whereas, whereas Wonder Woman needed to be proficient and, and professional and, and be able to handle everything perfectly because that's, that's what her purpose was. But I also like that even as we're seeing these three, like each one does have moments to shine yes. where uh, they're the, the star of this moment. This is their moment mm-hmm. uh, and they're in control. Absolutely. And, the, and that we need, yeah, and, and you need all of those things. You need wisdom and you need competence and you need uh, recklessness sometimes, right? Like <laughs> you need all of those elements uh, to get you out of the stickiest situations right the sticky situation which was of course caused by the recklessness of the teenager yes <laughs> you know, yeah but she feels very bad about it had had, had, Dr- <laughs> had drusilla not opened her mouth at all none of this would have happened uh or at least wouldn't have happened in this quite in quite this way and sure. um you know for for your listeners um what i'll say is that that drusilla's mistakes of the past didn't just affect her in this episode. The comic series that I'm writing, the wonder woman 77 meets the bionic woman is actually, uh, partially a direct sequel to the feminine mystique because the Nazi captain Radel played by John Saxon, 
who is uh, captured at the end of the episode and his mind is is wiped of the knowledge that he has about Paradise Island, um, he shows up now um, 35 years later and uh, he's broken out from prison by by some other villains and they want him to take them back to Paradise Island and uh and to use the the feminum the indestructible feminum which the amazons make their bracelets out of they they want to use that to to build an uh, an unstoppable army of fembots which are the 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 robotic villains from Bionic Woman so so there's actually Radel gets his chance to go back to Paradise Island and reconfront and and fix all the mistakes that he made with his army of 12 when he attempted to take over Paradise Island the first time now he has an army of 500 and uh so it's so it's a a much bigger much bigger stakes but again if Drusilla had just kept her mouth shut none of these stories would happen <laughs> oh Drusilla <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoy uh, watching her spill the beans where she's like, he's like, where are you from? And she's like, I can't tell you. The first law is you don't tell anyone about Paradise Island. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have said that. And, but then it, when it cuts to the Nazis that are listening, uh, you know, they got the room tapped. And she's she's like, well, I told you about Paradise Island. Now I might as well tell you all the landmarks to right. get <laughs> But it's the thing with the, with the moon, right? He says, um... Oh, uh, I bet, I bet there's a full moon every night. And she says, that doesn't make any sense. And then he starts asking her about the stars. And then she says, <laughs> right. He she, she tells him exactly where all the stars are at every given point so that they can plot a course to this place. <laughs> Which is in the middle of, of the Bermuda Triangle. So they, they should just kind of, once they get there, they should have just been like, wait a minute. It's in the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, this is going to be trouble. Yeah. But bulletproof metal, uh, you know, is, I guess, worth the trouble. I, I have to say, watching these episodes, because these uh, are from the, the 70s, as we said, and they, I think each one was about 50 minutes long. And I'm so trained for the modern length of episodes. Like, I, I just was starting to feel like the beat, like the end should be coming. <laughs> and it's just funny as an experience of a viewer that it's not just... It's dated because of costumes, which obviously any show from the 70s is. But, like, the actual length of the episode and how trained I am for what an hour-long drama is today affected my viewing. I, like, I was waiting for the wrap-up right, right. before the wrap-up started to happen. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that as well as uh, some of the cable shows that, that you watch are 50 minutes or 60 minutes or whatever. You know, I mean, like, Feud just wrapped up this week and... I think it was, you know, an hour and 10 minutes or something. It was almost a, a two hour wrap up. And, and I, I remember thinking, well, this is going on longer than it should because I'm so <laughs> used to, okay, here's the story beat here. There's going to wrap this up and then this is going to happen. And, you know, and, uh, so as you're watching these episodes, if you watch them on DVD or, or digital and you actually see the whole episode as opposed to if you watch them on me TV, they've, they've cut the heck out of them. And there's a lot of scenes missing, but if you watch them in their, you know, original form, you do get a longer story. I, I think it just reveals how um, 
how trained we become by the media we consume, uh, like the the outlines of stories. Like we we know the three act structure so well, uh, and we know even if you're doing a you know a longer one, maybe even the five act structure, but we still know those beats intuitively at this point. Uh, and to see it stretch out just that little extra, you know, less than ten minutes extra, it, it I did feel it though as a viewer. Right, right. So I've got a question. I'm trying to think this through. Sometimes in in stories that highlight uh, gender. Uh, or identity, uh, it's about, um, this idea of balance, right? Like, men need women and women need men, and, and if, uh, the, the, the key here is balance. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you get, do we get that sense with Wonder Woman, or is this really just about, uh, like feminine empowerment, and she doesn't really need anybody, and, and so Paradise Island, like, you don't need men, you can have Paradise just with women. Yeah, that's, that, that's absolute, that's the, one of the messages of the series that was so revolutionary is uh-huh. at no point in the series from start to finish did Diana ever, there were times when she, she might need the help of a man for something minor, but at no point in the series was she ever uh, second to a man. Um, and and in this two-parter, you know, it, it, the 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 Amazons very handily defeat the Nazis, and you know the Queen Mother is she's uh, not geriatric, but she's she's you know getting up there in years, and she still defeats sure. a guy with a gun to her head, and so what they but but as the series progressed and as Diana Prince progressed, uh. In, especially in the second and third season, she became much more independent and she was going off and having these super spy adventures on her own. And they were really saying that this woman was not just as competent as the men around her. She was actually superior to the men around her, both as Wonder Woman and as Diana Prince. Okay. So and it's it was, not about, it's not about her teaming up with Steve. Correct. No, Steve was, Steve was the lowest lane of the series. Uh, every episode, uh, for the most part, he would get, he, he himself would get chloroformed. He'd get knocked out. He would get tied to a chair. Um, he'd get tied to a bomb. He'd get tied to a rock. Uh, lots of, there's lots of tying up in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in, in the original Wonder Woman comics, there was lots of bondage on the TV show. They just kind of flipped the script and it was Steve that was constantly in bondage instead of Wonder Woman in bondage. Sure. But I mean, regarding the gender issues, like I 100% could envision a world where this episode was made and the U.S. Army came in and saved Amazon, you know, Paradise Island at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's not the story that was told for this. Like they, they dodged that particular issue, but. The, and, and this kind of story being told would often have like that third act save Deus Ex Machina saved from outside. Right, and they did it consistently every single episode. It was the women that saved the day, and um, and and besides that, there was also an interesting thing. And this this is one of the things that makes Wonder Woman so different as a superhero than many of the others. She's not a character born of tragedy. She, you know, there's nothing in her past that, that is a horrible, her planet didn't explode. She, her parents weren't killed. She wasn't bitten by a radioactive creature. She wasn't, you know, caught in an explosion. She decided and chose and fought to become a hero 
number one. Secondly, she was often trying to win not by subjugating or not by defeating, but by reforming her villains. She would consistently offer them a way out. Let's not fight about this. Let's talk about this. Let's find a way to solve this without violence. Now, you could say a part of that was because of the the standards and practices of the era, uh, which were like, you know, solve things in a nonviolent way and so forth. But really, that was a part of the character from the 1940s forward. She was consistently trying to... Uh, you talked about Marston and the fact that he believed that women had more love in them. And that's one of the things that, that Wonder Woman consistently had, was that she was always trying to, as the theme song would say, stop the war with love. She was not trying to stop the war with bombs or with guns or with fighting. She was trying to stop it with love. And it was really a revolutionary and still is a revolutionary concept i mean in this episode we do see like that one exchange between the mother and her where the mother says can't you reason with the nazis and she says well no not the nazis so there's like (laughs) a certain kind of villainy that that she says you know the maybe because i've tried in our previous episodes for whatever like it's not going to work in this and particularly when they're coming to paradise island uh that's not an option um but i like you said, as part of the comic book character's nature, um, it is different from um, some of the more, uh, let's see, reactively violent uh, characters that exist in, in the world of American comic books. Right. <laughs> um, and it's something that separates her uh, into kind of a different sphere from some of the other uh, most iconic superheroes. Do we see that? Do we see that bear out in her uh, exchanges in the Justice League? Is that a is that a point of tension between her and other members of the Justice League? Her love versus their uh, aggression. It it can be in some of the in some of the stories. It depended kind of on who is who is writing the adventures uh, of her. And there are the writers who get it, and there are the writers who don't get it. And the writers who don't get it just treat her as a really strong female version of Superman, and that that she'll just she will overpower her her foes or overpower whatever the conflict is and then there are the the writers who get it who will realize that that she that's not who she is she's not the person who's going to fight first it's one of the elements that the fans you know today with the the wonder woman movie about to come out and have her having appeared in batman versus superman there is a lot of conflict among the fans about the fact that she has a sword and a shield and they're really uh, spotlighting her being a warrior and she was never a warrior in the sense that she was going out there to look for war or to look for fight or conflict and so a lot of fans have have this have this disconnect with the current version of the character who is shown with a sword a lot and, you know, which is an aggressive, you know, male weapon. And, uh, you know, they're, they're saying, why can't she use the weapons that she has? Her mind, her powers, her bracelets, her lasso of truth. Those were always good enough for the first 70 years of her character. And, 
I think when we watch this new movie, um, that will be hopefully addressed in, 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 in the, um, in the course of the film as to why a character who is supposed to be about love and peace is still using weaponry. And, uh, I, I have some faith that the, that the filmmakers will actually address that in a, in a meaningful way. I have to say, if it was Zack Snyder directing it, I would not have that faith, but (laughs) it's not Zack Snyder directing it. So hopefully (laughs) I do have to say somebody who is just completely, uh, unversed in Wonder Woman, uh, that the scene in Batman versus Superman, one of the, one of the very few things that has stayed with me that uh-huh. I actually liked from that film is there's a, there's a moment where she gets, I can't remember what happens exactly, but she gets blasted or, or something and she kind of skids back and then she gets this look on her face that it looks kind of like, like glee almost, like right. she enjoys this fight. Right. And I was like, I really liked that a lot. And, um, but, uh, but I can totally see how it's, it's not, it doesn't quite gel with this version of the character that we're seeing here. I think the way I interpreted was that she was looking, she was looking at it as a, as not as necessarily as conflict at that point as a challenge. Like, you know, like, like somebody looking at a puzzle that, that you go, oh, that's got a thousand pieces. How am I ever going to put it together? But you're still happy to start on it because it's a challenge. And sure. I, I think that's, to me, that's what I got out of that scene was that she's not like, yay, more destruction to come. She's more like, oh, <laughs> okay, that kind of hurt. This is a challenge. How am I going to get out of it? You know, that was how I looked at yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that smile for me gave more character development than either Batman or Superman in the entire film. <laughs> a lot, a lot of people have said that. <laughs> yeah, um, Andy, you are very plugged in into the Wonder Woman fan scene. I guess uh, I will ask you this: Where does this TV series like? Is this something that defines a lot of fans' interpretation of Wonder Woman? Because I mean, this is a character that's existed for seventy-five years. There have been uh, hundreds of versions of Wonder Woman, basically, depending on what comic book series you pick up, or the cartoon interpretations, or the straight-to-DVD cartoon film, or the live action that we're getting now. But where does this TV show kind of stand as far as defining the character for a lot of fans? Well, what you have to look at is the development of media as it related to Wonder Woman, and I always posit that. Wonder Woman is probably the most famous female character, uh, in the world ever. Uh, you have children in, you know, Pakistan and Russia who will know who the character is by, by looking at her. Um, you have grandparents who know who the character is. You have people all over the world who just by looking at that character know who she is. They know something about her, even if it's something very minor. And, you know, you have female characters or, or female icons and you say, well, Madonna is an icon. Uh, and that's whether you're talking about the singer or the mother of Christ. Um, you know, or you have Princess Diana from England is an icon, or Lady Gaga is an icon, or Cher, or, uh, you know, Catherine Hepburn, or, you know, you can, you can take these things and you can say, yes, but is a six-year-old going to know who some of these icons are? Is, uh, a person in, in another land going to know the difference between Minnie Mouse 
and Betty Boop versus will they know who Wonder Woman is? So you look and you, you kind of say, number one, she is, she is astonishingly famous. And the main reason for that is not the comics. It's the TV show. If you look at the development of media, the comics were around for 30 some years prior to the TV show appearing on the air. But when the TV show appeared on the air, that was the start of when syndication and reruns and so forth were starting to, the television series were starting to be syndicated worldwide at that point. So you had a series that was female led and, and one of the first of its kind and featured a gorgeous woman, um, in a, you know, semi skimpy costume. Um, and it became something that uh, worldwide the, the series was a tremendous hit and it ran in reruns from the 1970s all the way up to the 2000s. And now they're rerunning it again on TV, even though it's available on DVD and digital and so forth. So as a television series, the, which has now been around for 40 of Wonder Woman's 75 years, um, and, and as the first of its kind, there was, there was not a Wonder Woman movie prior to the TV series. There was not a Wonder Woman cartoon or other television series prior to it. That was the first. Uh, you know, I mean, I suppose you could say there was the Kathy Lee Crosby pilot, but, uh, many <laughs> people don't know about that and didn't really consider it very Wonder Woman-y for good reason. But when you look at how the television series developed, in the world of media and the fact that it was broadcast all over the world and it was so revolutionary for its time. Um, you know, suddenly you've got, if, if you look at how it was developed in different lands too, uh, Linda Carter is, is partially Latina. And so in South America and Mexico, she was on the cover of magazines like every other week as Wonder Woman and the character in, and the TV show was huge because there was suddenly a Latina face on television, on American television. Uh, in, in Japan, Wonder Woman was the first sexy superheroine, you know, coming from America. And so it was very big in Japan for kind of for that reason. It was colorful and sexy. Um, so the show really defined, uh, that element uh, in terms of kind of a media takeover. As far as fans are concerned, there, there's kind of like, there's, there's, uh, television series fans, and then there is comic book fans, most of whom still love the television series, but they might have started picking it up when George Perez relaunched the series in the in the eighties. And um, the the television series got it so right that it's hard for even the comic fans to to argue with it. Um, nowadays, as Wonder Woman has evolved, and you got. You know, Wonder Woman did appear in the Super Friends, and that lasted 13 seasons. But her characterization there was not significantly different from the television series. Uh, it wasn't until Justice League, which used the uh, the George Perez version of Wonder Woman, and kind of highlighted and spot 
spotlighted more of her warrior aspects. And that was really when the character in the public eye, the character started to change. And my nephews and nieces who, who were young enough at that point in time, when they were watching it to them, that's more their version of wonder woman. The, the version, the Linda Carter version is what I watched um, and made them watch, <laughs> you know, but, but, but the, there's, there's a newer generation to whom they'd seen the Linda Carter version, but they might like the justice league version better. And now we're in it. We're in a time and place where uh, little girls are getting to watch DC superhero girls on online and on DVD and they're getting to play with the toys. And so to them, to, to my little grandnieces who I've given the, you know, DC superhero girls, uh, comics to their, to them, that's their version of Wonder Woman. This is kind of a teenager version and, and, but it still stands for the same essential things. Um, she's still like ultra powerful and, and, always on top of things and always about telling the truth and always about trying to reform her villains rather than hurting them. And, you know, so to them, that's their version. And now, uh, the, the, the people who are in the, say their, their, you know, teenage years to, to mid twenties, they're about to get the new movie. And, and I'm really hoping that, that the movie version will, will bring out, some of those true aspects of the character too, that it won't just be warrior woman, that it'll be, you know, an actual character who does bring a sense of wonder. I like that. I hope so too. All right. I uh, think we're going to have to wrap up here pretty soon, but Andy, before we let you go, there's a a question that we always ask our first time guests on the protagonist podcast. Mm -hmm. We are all about talking about great characters and great stories. And we always ask kind of the, the dinner uh, party question if you could have any uh three to five fictional characters around for dinner party just to enjoy the conversation that would take place who would you want to invite to your home for a dinner party (laughs) oh wow Uh, these are fictional characters that's what we uh, some people uh if it's been portrayed they'll skirt the line and say uh you know so and so played this character so i'm gonna count that but uh yeah just uh again just you know for a pleasant conversation what characters would you want to have around you for a little while you know, uh, when you're talking about fictional characters, I think that, um, uh, surprisingly, uh, you know, I'm an openly gay man, and surprisingly, many of the fictional characters I'd want to have dinner with might be women. So I think I would say I would probably want to uh, have dinner with Wonder Woman and Princess Leia uh, and the Bionic Woman. Because I think that they were some of the best heroines uh, and and the best alternatives to heroes that we've that we've had in you know in modern day. Uh, other fictional characters, uh, you know, Aquaman is. Uh, I, I'm a big DC guy, so so I'm going to skew more <laughs> towards the DC characters. I, I would say that that Aquaman and uh, because he he gives a whole perspective of of the world that is you know how much of the world is covered with water and that's his domain and uh so i would say aquaman and uh probably hawkman and green arrow because they would argue a lot and and (laughs) one of them is an alien and the other one is a really hot vigilante and you know and so 
uh, who's, who's ultra liberal. So, you know, I mean, like, like, how could you not have a perfect dinner party with, with, uh, <laughs> with that, that group? Wonder Woman, Princess Leia, the Bionic Woman, Aquaman, Green Arrow, and Hawkman. It, I, I think there would be a great conversation to be had there, and I think they'd get along just fine. I don't, I don't know what they would eat. What, what would you find that everyone there would like? Not, not seafood. Not seafood right. for Aquaman. <laughs> I have a feeling it would be, I've always, it would uh, be mostly vegan. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've always enjoyed that uh, sometimes in Justice League of America comics, it's uh, a Kryptonian and Atlantean and Amazon uh, Martian uh, and a Thanagarian are making up some of the core of the Justice League of America. Right, right. And they're, they're, what, what, what do they all have in common as far as the Justice League of America is, is concerned? They're all uh, not just refugees, they're all immigrants. They all have come to America and they're all working to make America um, really, truly a wonderful place. All right. Uh, any final thoughts on Wonder Woman, gentlemen, before we wrap up this conversation? I, 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 I'm glad I, we got to do this. I, I am too. I, and I, I uh, um, appreciate the opportunity. I do want to want, give one more plug out to my comic, uh, the Wonder Woman 77 meets the Bionic Woman comic. Uh, the fourth issue is about to come out in a, in a couple of weeks here. Uh, in a week, actually, from today. And there's two issues left. And there is, it, it, it is as what I've tried to do with the book is give any fan who's ever loved Wonder Woman in any form and any fan who's ever loved the Bionic Woman in any form and anyone who loves kick butt female characters. I've tried to really give them anything they could want in this series and uh and and really uh kind of flavor it with with humor with uh a lot of action uh and and write it as period piece as i can because it's set in 1977 and boy do the uh the 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 sets and costumes reflect that uh who's the artist on the series the artist on the series is named judith tondora and she's a hungarian artist um, and it was really important to me, actually, that we got a female artist. You know, this is a book about two iconic female characters. I wanted to have as many, as many, uh, female creators on the series as possible. So we got a female artist. Our letterer is a woman. We had, we had a lettering couple on the first three issues. And then our second three issues are being lettered by a, a woman solo. Um, you know, so it was very important to me that we have, uh, a feminine touch in the series and judith is uh she's she, her work is stellar i think she's gonna have a huge career ahead of her and uh listeners if you, you don't have a local comic book shop that you already frequent if you just go to one and ask they will be able to get those issues for you uh, if they don't have them in stock already they they can take care of that they they love to help new readers find the comic books they're looking for uh, and, uh, also, uh, there's a thing called the internet where you'd be able to find ways to order those issues. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're on Amazon. They're on eBay, but go to your, com go right, to your well, comic book store first. <laughs> Thank you again, Andy, for, for joining us. Uh, Wonder Woman is a character that we've had on our list to get to since we started the protagonist podcast. Uh, and, uh, when we, we ended up in touch with each other, I, I thought we have to have Andy, Andy on to talk about this, particularly when you were writing, uh, the Wonder Woman Bionic Woman comic book. Thank you guys. And I hope, uh, for not just for the listeners, but for, for the two of you who just watched the feminine mystique. Now you're, I'm hoping that you will, 
be inspired to be like, okay, now I have to go watch some more episodes of Wonder Woman. <laughs> I, I have an eight-year-old daughter who's going to make sure that we watch some more Wonder Woman. <laughs> Great. Thank you, guys. Okay, that wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes, and please leave us a review there. It really helps us out. If you're a new listener, just a note about our back catalog. We switched up our format a bit at episode 13, so our first dozen episodes are a bit meandering in terms of discussion and length. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to check out episode number 87, where we discussed another comic book character, Doctor Strange, or number 65, where we talked about Ms. Marvel. Links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. That's also where you can find a list of all of our shows. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We are also on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. We have great conversations there with our listeners and would love for you to say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, there are a few different ways you can do that. You can buy a, a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by clicking on the support link on our homepage or going to patreon.com slash protagonist. All supporters on Patreon receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers. You can also go to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon to make all of your Amazon purchases. Just a reminder, it looks exactly like regular Amazon and costs you nothing more but we get a small kickback from your purchase. And finally, don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of Audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Uh, oh, hang on. Something just sounded not great. Just gotta edit number two. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I think we're okay. Um, so.